Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 11th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are broadcasting our podcast from the historic Stonewall Jackson Hotel in downtown Stanton, Virginia. I visited this town 40 years ago this summer. My first extended stay in the state of Virginia. Actually, my second. <laughs> we, all, we are going to attend the Unite the Right rally tomorrow. Whether it happens or not, we're going to be with the men and women from the League of the South, who I understand are, are, are attending in sufficient numbers that's all I could really say it's supposed to be a lot more than we're actually in New Orleans with us back in May the Unite the Right rally may happen as it's scheduled or it may not we're not sure yet we, we've heard um, all kinds of reports but whatever happens we will be there and I will report on that probably next week Yahweh willing Tonight we are going to present part 13 of our series of presentations of Clifton Emmeheiser's special notices to all who deny to seed line. And as we have been doing for the first, for, for all 13 parts of the series, I have a few things to say before I begin to present Clifton's material. The matter of salvation is continually disputed by presumed identity Christians. And those disputes are fraught with emotional arguments by people who are steeped in the teachings of the traditional churches. Teachings which are often incorrect. Furthermore, the disputants are quite frequently invested with a desire to judge sinners for themselves rejecting the judgment of Yahweh God if it does not agree with their own judgment. So they make what should be a rather simple doctrine into something very complicated. They end up with a proverbial bowl of spaghetti and then they even disfellowship one another in their persistent arguing over the details of their own constructions. But the matter of salvation should be a simple issue, and it should not at all be complicated, if only we would accept and believe the Word of God. The biggest problem I see within the general Christian identity community, Clifton will always also speak of through us this evening, from his paper which we are about to present. This biggest problem is indeed the fact that most Christian identity adherents, as well as most of its preachers, have come from Judeo-Christian denominational churches. In turn, most of them have brought many of the doctrines of those denominational churches along with them on their Christian identity journey. The Roman Catholic idea of heaven and hell comes straight from the beliefs of the Pharisees, 
and was retained in one form or another by the denominational churches. Many presumed identity pastors have never let go of their seminary training, and that also exacerbates the divisions among identity Christians. So at Christagenia we suffer disputes, and we are even trolled and slandered on social media over this issue. Rather oddly, the same individuals who troll us on this issue do not slander or troll Jews, Catholics, or even Evangelicals for what they believe. However, we have also observed one important aspect in the thinking of the people who dispute with us on this issue, and that is that they all have this idea that one verse of Scripture somehow actually cancels out what is said in another verse of Scripture. That is not the correct way to approach the word of Yahweh our God. Not at all. And as soon as anyone is infested with such a boneheaded idea, they cannot ever divide the word of God correctly. Before we come to a conclusion on anything which is stated in any verse of Scripture, we must accept the fact that every verse of Scripture that comes from God is true. Of course, the words of men recorded in Scripture are not necessarily true, such as the sayings of Cain, the edicts of heathen kings, the sophistry of the friends of Job, or the contentions of the Pharisees. However, every word of God is true, Verses of Scripture may only be challenged if they are demonstrably corrupt or mistranslated, or if they can be proven to be later interpolations. Without clear, without clear evidence of such things, every verse of Scripture must be accepted. With this in mind, disputing the matter of salvation, I recently asked one of my social media adversaries a series of questions, but not necessarily in the order in which I will present them this evening. I will elaborate on them here. And I have changed the order slightly. This individual has trolled and slandered me relentlessly in relation to this single issue. From Romans chapter 11, we read from verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And then in verse 32, For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. So you receive mercy even if you don't believe in Jesus. So before we contend with Scripture, we must ask ourselves, which part of this was Paul lying about? And where Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 22, For as in Adam all men die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Which part of that statement is a lie? One common argument made by these 
childish sophists is that Yahweh intended only to refer to all of the tribes of Israel, as if he only meant to ensure that at least some members of each tribe would have eternal life. However, that is not what the text infers in the context in which Paul made those statements. Not at all. In that manner, we read Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25, that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory all the seed of Israel. Let's read this passage in its own context, where Yahweh is addressing the dispersed children of Israel, those who were being taken captive, off into Assyrian captivity as the prophet was writing. And they are the seed of Jacob, as they are referred to in verse 19 of the chapter, to whom he then says, in verse 21, Tell ye, and bring them near, Yea, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh? And there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. The horns of Joseph would push his people to the ends of the earth. Here we have a metaphor, an idiom, referring to those children of Israel pushed to the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. And that's a messianic prophecy. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So which part of Isaiah chapter 45 verse 25 is not true? Does the meaning of the phrase, all the seed of Israel change, because... Some men feel that one Israelite or another is not worthy of such a salvation. Is not worthy of such a salvation. In truth, the entire biblical narrative informs us that no Israelite is actually worthy of such a salvation. Not one. In Micah chapter 7, we see a promise to the same children of Israel, which was also made as they were being taken off into the Assyrian captivity. And the closing verses of the book of this prophet read, Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. We can't subdue them. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers 
from the days of old. So we must ask if any Israelite is going to be tortured eternally or even completely destroyed for his sin. Which part of Micah 7.19 is not going to happen? Which part of Micah 7.19 is a lie? Why would the prophet lie where he spoke for Yahweh and said, He will turn again, he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Have we stopped sinning? Or have our sins been forgiven? In Hosea chapter 13, we read another promise of mercy made to the same people of the kingdom of Israel around the very same time as Isaiah and Micah, but whom the prophet had called after the name of Ephraim, their principal tribe, where he wrote, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. So which part of death and the grave are not going to be destroyed? Which part of death and the grave are going to prevail over the word of God? This is a messianic prophecy, meaning that it relates to the mercy and forgiveness which is extended to Israel through Christ. So we must ask, which part of Hosea chapter 13 is going to fail. Likewise, there is a similar messianic prophecy which appears in Isaiah chapter 28. So we must also ask, which part of Isaiah 28, verses 15 through 18, spoken to the sinful rulers of the people of Jerusalem, is not going to be fulfilled? There we see that even if they wanted to destroy themselves, Yahweh would not let them be destroyed. Where he said, Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we in agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies." And the water shall overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death shall be disannulled. And your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be 
trodden down by it. We're going to suffer judgment. The people will suffer in the judgment to come. But ultimately, their covenant with death shall be disannulled. Fully indicating that it is the will of God that they live, and they cannot change the will of God. Which part of Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, was Jesus wrong about? There he recorded, I'm sorry, there he is recorded, as having said, that he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. Note that he said, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. And we cannot add to the list of what will not be forgiven on our own. The purpose of this life is greater than we are. In Daniel chapter 12, we read concerning the people of Yahweh, that thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So who is it whom is resurrected to everlasting contempt? Mere shoplifters? People that didn't go to church? Or maybe even pedophiles or other sorts of fornicators? What about murderers? Even King David was a murderer. And he was forgiven. So how can we insist upon these things? When Christ told us differently. Maybe only those who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit shall face eternal contempt. Since that is the only sin which Christ said shall not be forgiven unto man. But facing eternal contempt, they must nevertheless live for eternity. Otherwise, their contempt would not be eternal. Neither can we ascribe every sin which we abhor to the category of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as Christ defines that for us, where he himself used the term. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. But don't try gathering grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, as anyone not gathering with Christ is against Christ. So at the end of the age, at the return of the Son of Man, which of the sheep goes off into the lake of fire along with the goats? Where it says in the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 25, And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There, we do not see any of the sheep facing destruction. And the sheep are entire nations, and not merely individuals that have done good or evil. Considering the matter of salvation, 
each of these passages must be evaluated, and there are many others which make similar statements, which may also have been included here. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 31, in the very promise of a new covenant, the children of Israel are promised that all of their sins shall be forgiven, all of their sins shall be cleansed. But confronted with this, our adversaries have only resorted to a another list of passages which in their own small minds somehow cancel out all of these passages. But that is not the correct way to interpret Scripture. Since Yahweh God does not change and all of His words are true, half of the Bible is not a lie. Ten or twenty passages are not lies. The first step to reconciling all of the scriptures concerning the law, sin, and punishment is to realize that there is a temporal salvation and there is an eternal salvation. The difference between temporal salvation and eternal salvation is illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where speaking of a fornicator Paul had instructed the assembly to deliver such a one unto Satan in other words cast him out of your Christian assembly for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus the fires of Gehenna are the punishments for sin which we face in this world. And there are trials which come upon us for both personal sin and for national sin. When we repent from sin and seek after our God, we hope to escape punishment. However, in the end, we will all be saved according to the promises. The King James Version has another unfortunate translation. Where we read the word damnation, the true meaning of the original is merely judgment. The same word is very often translated judgment, much more frequently than it's translated damnation. Christ explains in John chapter 5 that some men receive a resurrection of life, and others a resurrection of judgment, not damnation. The word is judgment. For this Paul compares the repentant with the unrepentant in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And he says that some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment. Evidently they are the men who confessed their sin and repented. And Paul goes on to say, and some men they follow after. That word judgment in 1 Timothy 5.24 is the same word damnation. It comes from the same Greek word krisis as damnation in John 5.29 where Paul himself only hoped that he would be found worthy of resurrection that does not mean that the alternative option is eternal suffering or even destruction. It says in the wisdom of Solomon, For God created man to be immortal 
and made him to be an image of his own eternity. If one Adamic man fails to be immortal, then we must ask whether God has failed in his design. Then it says in that same place, Nevertheless, and through envy of the devil came death into the world. And we read in 1 John chapter 3, that for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He came not to destroy his people, but the works of the devil. That a man has that eternal salvation, regardless of what he has done in this life, is evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides, which he is built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Neither is that eternal salvation based upon belief. As Paul had said in Romans 11.32, For God has concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. However, a belief in Christ in this life leads to a keeping of his commandments, and that helps to save us in this life. Furthermore, it permits us as Paul had said, to have our sins open beforehand, going before to judgment, by giving us the opportunity for repentance. So our race, the sheep, every one of us, our race has a promise of eternal salvation in the word of God, except that some man shall be resurrected to everlasting contempt as Daniel states, or shall have no reward at all, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What these things mean to describe specifically cannot yet be told, as we read in the words of the Apostle John in chapter 3 of his first epistle. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All of Israel shall indeed be saved. Only Jews and mongrels and other non-whites would despise and reject Romans 11.26, 1 Corinthians 15.22, or Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25. Only Jews and mongrels would hate those verses. Only Jews and mongrels would seek to pervert the plain and simple meaning of those passages. I've been accused of nihilism. Oh, you're a nihilist because you believe this. No, I'm not a nihilist at all. Once we realize the importance and the obligations we have 
because we have eternal life. Once we realize the importance of brotherly love, of brotherly forgiveness, relative to the obligations we will have having eternal life, only then do we understand the true significance of the law and the keeping of the law. If, as many people believe today, they are very likely damned to hell, then their attitude would be, well, to hell with the law. I don't have to keep the law. It's not going to do anything for me. It's not going to get me to heaven. It's not going to give me a better salvation. They're even taught to do away with the law because Jesus gave them the perfect salvation. Well, yes, Yahshua Christ did give us a perfect salvation. But for that reason, because we know through that salvation, we know that we are going to live forever, then we realize the importance of brotherly love, brotherly forgiveness, and keeping the law. It's the opposite of nihilism. And with this, we shall commence with our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's Special Notice to All Who Deny to Seed Line, Part 13. And Clifton opens by saying, We need to understand, as he said for many of the first 12 parts, we need to understand again that we are at the very zenith of a 7,000 plus year old war. Because of a misinterpretation of Genesis 3.15, many wrongly apply this passage to a war between the spirit against the flesh. While it is true that there is a personal struggle between the spirit and the flesh, the carnal mind, This scripture does not refer to that type of conflict. The war in Genesis 3.15 is a hate war. It is totally preposterous, therefore, to try to apply Genesis 3.15 to Ephesians 2.15 or Romans chapter 8. And I will expound on that in a few moments. Clifton says... The enmity in Ephesians refers to something quite different. Actually, Genesis 3.15 speaks about two hate groups. A good hate group and a bad hate group. You probably have been told that only bad people hate. And that simply is not true. These two hate groups are at war with each other. And this war is not going to be over until one or the other is totally crushed. And you can mark that one down for posterity. Our posterity. And in fact, we hope to see one manifestation of this tomorrow in Charlottesville. Of course, it's insignificant on the grand scale of things. In Romans chapter 8, Paul discussed the advantage of those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This means that those who walk after the flesh will not be resurrected to judgment. Those who do not walk after the flesh will not be resurrected to judgment, but to eternal life. 
We would interpret this to mean that having made manifest their sins beforehand in repenting, they would hope to receive a better resurrection. As for the race as a whole, Paul had already explained in Romans chapter 5 that, as it reads in the King James Version, therefore, by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, comparing Christ to Adam, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life, or, as he had put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, certainly have an advantage. But it doesn't mean that the fleshly are going to be condemned forever. On the other hand, the enmity in Ephesians 2.15 is not an enmity between God and the flesh, or between the spirit and the flesh. Rather, while in the flesh, Yahweh destroyed the enmity which prevented the reconciliation of Israel, which was in the law, forbidding a husband to take back a wife that had committed adultery or fornication. Israel had done these things, and as Paul explained in Romans chapter 7, Yahweh died, releasing Israel from the judgments of the law, so that he may betroth Israel once again, as he had promised in the prophets. But the enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent of Genesis 3.15 is a different enmity altogether. And the enmity, an enmity which is never rectified until the beast, the false prophet, the devil, and his angels all go to the lake of fire. When that happens, only then is the enmity of Genesis 3.15 put to an end. Along with all of the goat nations who are said to have that same fate as the devil and his angels. Something the anti-exterminationists don't seem to fathom. Continuing with Clifton under the subtitle, One Seed Line and Antichrist Doctrine. Clifton says, This is a very serious charge, yet it is true, as you will see shortly. Maybe it would be well if the term one seed line were defined. It also might be called non-seed line or anti-seed line, and those terms are probably better. Depending to which extreme it might be taken, if it is taken to the extreme of reducing the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 to be the flesh and the spirit, as Ted R. Whelan did, then it would have to be defined as anti-seed line. When this extreme position is taken, then even the seed of the Messiah is denied. Truthfully, this stance would have to be defined as anti-seed line, making their position not only anti-seed line, 
but also Antichrist. I will now demonstrate why this is so. And before we continue with Clifton's demonstration, let me say that Clifton's argument here is predicated on the interpretation of Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy that the bruising of the heel related to the crucifixion of the Messiah. That is the way it has been interpreted traditionally by the denominational churches. And it leads to the assumption that Christ alone is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. We reject that assumption. Even Paul of Tarsus described the seed promised to Sarah as the collective seed manifest in Isaac and his descendants. The seed of the woman is the entire collection of her descendants. However, we would agree that the crucifixion of the Messiah is a symbolic fulfillment of the bruising of the heel, since he was the first to arise from the dead to eternal life. The devil can cause the Adamic man to die physically, but that is only a heel bruising, as the Adamic man escapes to life eternal by Yahweh's design. That eternal life is the gift of God and comes to us through Christ, who is its author. That is the symbolism which I see in Genesis 3.15. However, while Clifton associated the bruising of the heel with the Messiah, unlike the denominational churches, Clifton also properly understands that the seed of the woman are her collective descendants, and the seed of the serpent are the collective descendants of the serpent. We would also interpret that a little more broadly. However, Clifton's interpretation is not wrong. So we must keep all of these things in mind as we proceed through Clifton's explanation. And we must not imagine that he is contradicting himself. Continuing, Clifton says... When I first started researching 2C line and realizing how serious were the ramifications, also observing those who rejected this teaching, it did not occur to me that such a teaching might be Antichrist. By delving into the position of the 1C liners, the thought that it could be Antichrist gradually dawned on me along with the realization that the subject of the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 is even more serious than I formerly considered. Let me put it this way. There are certain basic fundamental tenets to our Christian faith. These beliefs are as follows. We believe that Yahweh created all things, visible and invisible, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, and that he was... One, he was of one substance, being both man and Yahweh, when he took on that flesh. That he suffered and died in the flesh, at the hands of unholy men. That he rose again in the flesh, John chapter 2. That he ascended into heaven in the flesh. That from thence he will return in the flesh, to judge both the living and the dead. Every one of these tenets is essential and indispensable to the Christian faith. Consequently, 
anyone denying these fleshly manifestations of Yahweh is an antichrist, citing 1 John chapter 4, Clifton quotes, and every spirit that confesses not that Yahweh, I'm sorry, that Christ, meaning Yahshua, that Christ is come in the flesh is not of Yahweh. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. Clifton then responds and says that the denial of the two seeds mentioned in Genesis 3.15 is just as wicked. For if there were no seed of the serpent to bruise the heel of the Messiah at the betrayal and crucifixion, we would have no redemption. If he was not bruised for our iniquities, we have nothing to look forward to except the grave. It is blasphemous to even infer that he was not bruised. And yet that is what the one seed liners, anti-seed liners, insist on doing. It is every bit as blasphemous to say that the word was not made flesh as it is to imply that he was not bruised. Yet the anti-sea liner's position boils down to just that. To spurn two sea line is to reject Isaiah 53.5, where it says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And Clifton explains... To deny two seed line is to reject the bruising of our Redeemer. For it was the seed of the serpent that was to bruise him. Judas Iscariot was of that seed line. If there was no seed of the serpent to bruise him, we would have no redemption. In short, it's an antichrist religion, and they should be ashamed. Again, if there's no seed of the serpent, there was no bruising. If there was no bruising... There is no redemption. Therefore, I will repeat again, the one seed liners and anti-seed liners, or whatever you wish to call them, are teaching an antichrist, anti-messiah doctrine by denying two seed line. There are those who advocate that we two seed liners declare a truce with the one seed liners or anti-seed liners for the good of the identity message. To that I reply, should we also make a truce with those who declared that Yahweh did not come in a flesh? And before continuing, it should be noted that since part 11 of this series, Clifton has been addressing the postulation put forward by Ted Wyland and others that the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 are the seeds of the flesh and the seeds of the Spirit. This postulation is indeed deserving of ridicule once it is examined in the, in the light of all subsequent scripture. I have no doubt. So Clifton continues his own ridicule under the subtitle Three doctrines stand or fall together. And he says, while there are several doctrines taught in Genesis 3.15, three of these stand or fall together. 
These three fundamental doctrines are the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Messiah. They are mutually interdependent. Each one is equal in importance and cannot be separated from the other two. Since both the bruising, which Clifton notes of the betrayal and crucifixion, and the birth of Yahshua, or his coming in the flesh, are prophesied in Genesis 3.15. They stand or fall together. We can see from this that the bruising and incarnation are of equal importance, and to deny one is to deny the other. Therefore, I repeat, these three tenets in Genesis 3.15 stand or fall together. Without the incarnation, there could be no bruising. Without the bruising, there could be no significance to the crucifixion or the resurrection. Remove one element and we have nothing. Zip. Zero. Therefore, Genesis 3.15 incorporates the incarnation, death, and resurrection all in one verse. Why else would Yahweh be so careful about preserving Cain and his posterity if it wasn't to prevent the serpent's seed from being exterminated before the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. In order for Yahweh to keep his promise, the serpent's seed line had to be preserved as well as the woman's. And let me interrupt to say that these last sentences are true whether or not we interpret Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy that both seed lines have to be preserved until the end. Continuing with Clifton, he says Genesis 3.15 is also somewhat unique inasmuch as it speaks both generally and specifically. It speaks generally of a hate war between two genetic groups of people. It speaks specifically of an individual bruiser or betrayer from the one group and an individual redeemer from the other. Among other things, Genesis 3.15 predicts the outcome of this seemingly unending war. While there are many conflicts in this war between the two seeds, there are two specific significant events, the bruising of the heel and the bruising of the head. The blow to the heel of our sinless Messiah was only temporary as he rose again. The blow to the head of the serpent and his seed will be fatal and final to all belonging to that genetic line. Resurrection is implied in Genesis 3.15 because the blow to the heel was not fatal to the Messiah. Again I repeat, the incarnation, crucifixion, and the resurrection cannot be taught separately. We either have all three or we have none. To teach just one or two of these three elements alone is nonsense and heresy. This is, in essence, what the one-seed-liners or anti-seed-liners are doing. What it all boils down to is this. If one cannot understand the full implications of Genesis 3.15, one cannot comprehend the rest of the Bible. It is obvious, then, that the one seedliners with some of their irrational statements on that verse do not fathom the implications of that crucial and pivotal passage. With the prophecy that the serpent's seed would be totally crushed, no wonder they are sensitive to the word genocide and create so-called hate laws. No wonder they cry, never again. 
it would seem that deep within their satanic spirit, they are already aware of their final fate. And of course we would agree with that wholeheartedly, but it is also prophesied in many other places in scripture. Clifton then continues under the subtitle, Definition of an Antichrist. You can search in almost any Bible commentary and dictionary, and the definition for the term Antichrist is pretty much universally given as one who denies that Yahweh came in the flesh. If this is a proper definition, then it follows that according to the anti-seedliner's position, he also was not bruised by the seed of the serpent at the betrayal and crucifixion, nor did he rise from the dead after three days. This denial of a literal seed of the serpent, propounded by the one seedliner's, forces the same conclusion as that defined as Antichrist, putting them in the same category that claim being that there never existed a literal seed to bruise his heel. In other words, by denying a literal seed of the serpent, the one seed liners also become guilty of claiming that Yahweh did not come in the flesh. While some commentaries point to the Gnostics of that day as being the Antichrists, other commentaries point to the Jews. Actually, there were Jewish Gnostic groups, so both are probably true. Over the last approximately 2,000 years, the Jews have pretty much fulfilled this definition as being antichrists. If then, the one seedliners want to take the same position as the Jews, let them be marked for what they really are. Since John Wilson and Edward Hine first brought us the Israel identity message, we must pass through a refining process to clear away some false presuppositions, claiming today's Jews as a part of true Israel being one of them. With the teachings of men like Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, and San Jacinto Capt, the Jews instead have become have been more properly identified as Israel's formidable enemy. I admit that before knowing anything about the Israel identity message and the two sea lines of Genesis 3.15, I too was ignorantly holding this same Antichrist view herein described as one sea line and didn't know any better as that's all they ever taught in the churches that I attended until that time. And if I may summarize Clifton's premise here, it is based upon the proposals that Genesis 3.15 prophecies a seed to come of the woman which would ultimately bruise the head of the serpent and a seed to come of the serpent which would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But this seed to come of the woman is also the Messiah who would come in the flesh. These three concepts being tied together in Genesis 3.15 according to Clifton's thesis to deny one is tantamount to denying the other. If you deny that the serpent had physical seed which would bruise the heel of the Messiah, 
then in essence, according to Clifton's thesis, you are denying the Messiah himself. Because ostensibly, you are denying important aspects of his purpose and mission as they were prophesied in Scripture. If I may put Clifton's argument in a nutshell. Continuing with Clifton, he says, I should point out, here do we owe a debt of gratitude to British Israel. While doing so, though, there are some areas in which we cannot agree. We cannot take the position that the great German people are Assyrians, as they are truly the tribe of Judah. We cannot agree with British Israel that the Canaanite Jews are under the covenant of our fathers, and as British Israel is ignorant of two seed line, we cannot agree with that either, meaning we cannot agree with their ignorance. The one thing that I learned when getting into this Israel identity message is that it was necessary for me to unlearn many things that I thought I knew and start all over from scratch. This is what a lot of people getting into this message refuse to do. Paul, after his conversion, had to go to the desert for three years to be re-educated, citing Galatians chapter 1. Three years would have been a reasonable amount of time for him to have reviewed all the scriptures of the Old Testament in a new light. Why should we be any different than Paul? The problem in this identity movement is there are a lot of people who haven't been to the desert yet, meaning identity pastors, and he says identity pastors not accepted, meaning that they haven't relearned scripture in a new light and done it from scratch. They're patching old pieces of cloth onto their Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian baggage. This is exactly what we had endeavored to illustrate in the introduction to this program this evening, that many so-called identity pastors have clung to the doctrinal baggage of the denominational churches from which they came. So we cannot really consider them Christian identity. Rather, they are merely Baptists or Pentecostals or Catholics who have taken an identity patch and applied it to a denominational cloth. What they need to do instead is to wipe their minds clear of the doctrines of their former churches and weave a new tapestry of thought from scratch as they study scripture anew with an improved identity and covenant theology perspective. For my own part, I was blessed not to have a mindful of church dogma when I began my own studies. Continuing with Clifton, he says, let us read some commentary to help grasp the implications concerning what is considered Antichrist. There are a lot of opinions along this line, but we will concentrate on the definition of denying that Yahweh came in the flesh to dwell among us, and read the other three passages on this as found in 1 John, or the first epistle of John, from 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, 
Even now there are many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. And from 1 John 2.22 Who is a liar but he that denies that Yahshua is the Christ? He is antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. And then from 2 John So Clifton's paper should be amended to say that these three passages are found in the epistles of John, not just 1 John. In 2 John verse 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world, who confess not that Yahshua the Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And again, Clifton asserts that if Yahshua is the Messiah come in the flesh, he must be the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, and he must have been bruised by a literal seed of the serpent of Genesis 3.15. Otherwise, according to the Gospel of Ted Wyland, he was bruised by his own flesh. The anti-seed liners, claiming that the seed of the serpent is not literal, in essence deny all of the related concepts as well. They may claim that Clifton is reaching, but denying any aspect of the Word of God is in essence a denial of Christ himself. On the other hand, if Ted Wyland asserts that the seed of the serpent is the flesh, then Christ came in the seed of the serpent and not the seed of the woman, which is just as ridiculous a postulation, and that is certainly Antichrist. Clifton continues, and he says, The Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, Volume 1, page 179, says the following on the subject of Antichrist under References in Scripture. 1 John, Clifton quoting Zondervan, 1 John 2.22 defines an Antichrist as one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a one also denies the Father and the Son. According to John's definition, an Antichrist is anyone who denies that Jesus is God and Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, reference is made to the spirit of Antichrist, which again is described as coming in the future, and also, now it is in the world already. In this passage also, an Antichrist is defined as one who is a denier of the deity of Jesus Christ. In 2 John 7, Clifton still quoting Zondervan, a more specific reference is made to contemporary rejection of Christ by those who deny the reality of the Incarnation. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. John is anticipating docetism, the view, D-O-C-E, T-I-S-M, the view that Christ merely appeared to be in the flesh and was not actually incarnate. 
From these four passages, it is clear that Antichrist, according to John's definition, is a theological concept primarily and relates to the rejection of Christ or heretical views concerning his person. Now Clifton quotes the Interpreter's Dictionary to Bible and says, and writes that it says this concerning Antichrist, in part, Polycarp, however, is in agreement with the Johannine letters, the letters of John, that the Antichrist is the spirit of heresy, that everyone who denies the actual incarnation is in fact an Antichrist, and that he who denies the resurrection and judgment is the firstborn of Satan, quoting Polycarp. From the dictionary of the New Testament by Hastings, under the Apostolic Church, volume 3, under the topic Antichrist, we find some interesting information. While Hastings uses the words Jewish for Israelite and Judaism for the beliefs of the Israelites, he has some interesting statements to contribute to our enlightenment on this subject. Interestingly, Hastings connects the subject of Antichrist with the temptation in Genesis chapter 3. Thus, there seems to be a close affinity of two seedling doctrine with the subject of Antichrist. Reading excerpts now from pages 67 and 68, Clifton quoting Hastings, writes that although the word Antichrist does not occur till we come to the Johannine epistles, we have many evidences in the pre-Christian Jewish, or rather Israelite, literature, canonical and extra-canonical, that there was a widely spread idea of a supreme adversary who should rise up against God, his kingdom and people, or his Messiah, The strands that went to the composition of the idea were various and strangely interwoven, and much obscurity still hangs over the subject. Traces of this dragon myth appear here and there in the Old Testament, for instance in the story of the temptation in Genesis chapter 3, where, as in Revelation chapters 12 and 20, the serpent equals the dragon. And in the later apocalyptic literature, a dragon represents the hostile powers that rise up in opposition to God and his kingdom, citing the Psalms of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 29. The Psalms of Solomon are neither in the Bible nor in the Apocrypha. They are deuterocanonical or pseudepigraphal, if you will. But it was characteristic, back to the quote from Hastings, but it was characteristic of the forward look of prophetism and messianism, or the prophets and Messiah, that the idea of a conflict between God, or Yahweh, and the dragon was transferred from cosmogony to eschatology and represented as a culminating episode of the last days. And I would think that by cosmogony, they're talking about the ancient religions of Egypt 
and similar beliefs in the Draco or Dragon constellation and its battle against the Sun God, which we see in early Egyptian inscriptions, where Draco or the Dragon would attempt to swallow Set at the end of every day. And that's what they mean. That must be what they mean by cosmogony. And I would believe that those stories were in the stars at an early time. For the same reason that the stories are in the Bible. Because they represent truths about the origin, about the early years of our race, and the origin and nature of our enemies. And that's why this that this symbolism was chosen in Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 12 and Re- Revelation chapter 20. This is an ages old story from the dawn of our race. They weren't transferred from cosmogony to eschatology by accident or by happenstance or because some poet or some prophet thought it sounded cool. No, not at all. This is not a coincidence. Back to Clifton's quote from Hastings, however. And I'll back up a little bit. But it was characteristic of the forward look of prophetism and messianism that the idea of a conflict between God and the dragon was transferred from cosmogony to eschatology and represented as a culminating episode of the last days citing Isaiah 27 and Daniel 7. Side by side with the dragon myth must be set the Belial or Belial conception, a contribution to Israelite thought from the side of Persian dualism, which I would also dispute, with its idea of an adversary in whom is embodied not merely, as in the Babylonian creation story, the natural forces of chaos and darkness, but also, but all the hostile powers of moral evil, and in the interval between the Old Testament and New Testament, Belial is frequently used as a synonym for Satan and devil or archdemon, citing Jubilees and also referring us to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Belial idea was a much later influence than the dragon myth, for Babylonian religion offers no real parallel to a belief in a devil, and Chain's suggested derivation of the name from Belili, the goddess of the underworld, has little to recommend it. In other words, they don't accept it. But a subsequent fusion of Belial with the dragon was very natural, and we have a striking illustration of it when in Wisdom, chapter 2, and elsewhere, the serpent of the temptation is identified with the devil. And in Revelation 12, Revelation chapters 12 and 20, where... The dragon, the old serpent, is explained to be the devil and Satan. But so far as the New Testament is concerned, the earlier Antichrist tradition is taken over with important changes. Due to the differences between Judaism, 
and by this time the reference to Judaism is correct, and Christianity, and especially to the differences in their conception of the Messiah himself. At the same time, it must be noted that nothing like a single consistent presentation of the Antichrist idea is given by the New Testament as a whole. Elements of the conception appear in the Gospels, the Pauline Epistles, the Apocalypse, the Epistles of John, but in each group of writings it is treated differently and with more or less divergence from the earlier Israelite forms. In the Synoptic Gospels it is everywhere apparent that Jesus recognized the existence of the kingdom of evil under the control of a supreme personality variously called the devil, Satan or Beelzebub, who sought to interfere with his own messianic mission and whose works he had come to destroy. And we would only in part agree with all this. Hastings seems to want to represent our scripture as a compilation from diverse alien sources when in fact there are important parallels between the religion of the Hebrews, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians because they have a common origin and a common foundation to their myths. On the other hand, there are differences between them because they have different perspectives. The Babylonians didn't see a devil because they had a pagan perspective and they were worshipping devils. The reference to the Psalms of Solomon here is a reference to the Deuterocanonical work, which is generally thought to belong to the middle of the first century BC. I have not yet determined that for myself. The pericope in question is from the second of the eighteen Psalms in a collection, and it reads, Do not delay, O God, to repay them on their heads, to declare in dishonor the arrogance of the dragon. And I did not wait long until God showed me his insolence, pierced on the mountains of Egypt, more than the least despised on land and sea, his body carried about on the waves in great insolence, and there was no one to bury, for he had rejected him in dishonor. He did not consider that he was a human, nor did he consider the hereafter. He said, I will be Lord of earth and sea, and he did not recognize that God is great, mighty, mighty in his great strength. And that's the passage from the Psalms of Solomon. So what we have, what we apparently have, is a late poetic reference to an enemy of God as a dragon. The reference to wisdom is the wisdom of Solomon. It's that same verse we had quoted in our introduction this evening, which says in part that through envy of the devil, death came into the world. We cannot agree with this commentary that these things were interpreted differently in the Old Testament or New, or among the writers of the books of either Testament, 
Rather, the commentators themselves do not understand the nature of the allegories and epithets, or what it is that they actually represent. Neither is Satan necessarily a supreme personality, but rather Satan is a historic entity, a collective of particular individuals, which are forever opposed to God, which is collectively the seed of the serpent. And of course Hastings, the commentators at Hastings did not see that. Clifton continues, and he says, with this quotation on the subject of Antichrist, we should be beginning to get a conception of what this whole thing is all about. In order to delve into this matter a little further, let's consider the term Belial. For this I will quote again from the same volume in Hastings, from page 146. Belial, taking the meaning worthlessness, we note that the ordinary use of Belial in the Old Testament suits it very well. The sons of Belial, or men of Belial, means worthless or wicked men. According to the common Hebrew idiom, which substitutes a genitive for an adjective. The word is, however, twice used in the Old Testament as a quasi-proper name. In Psalm 18.4, we read of the cords of death, the floods of Belial, the cords of Sheol, the snares of death. Here, Belial equals the underworld, and we would refute that. Again, in Nahum 1.15, we read that Belial shall no more pass through Judah. He is utterly cut off. In this passage, Belial almost exactly corresponds to the man of lawlessness, the man of perdition of St. Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the Sibylline Oracles, where the reference to the August, August Augustans, I'm sorry, shows the passage to be a later interpolation, probably of the first century A.D., Belial is Antichrist. There are many forms of his name, chiefly due to the phonetic interchange of the liquids Belial, Belier, Belium, Belion, Beliab, Belias, Burial. And we would think that in Psalm 18.4, as well as in Nahum 1.15, the ungodly men, the wicked, or Belial, is not, Belial is not a proper name. They are the non-white and the mixed races, the enemies of the Israelites mentioned in Psalm 18.3. I don't know how Hastings believed it was a proper name when it clearly refers to the collection, the collective of non-white and mixed races who were overrunning Israel, the Canaanites, the Kenites, the Rephaim, whoever was, which, whichever group was extant at the time that the psalm was written. This refers to worthless men who are either of mixed race, the wrong side of the seed line, or are joined to those of mixed race. That's why they're worthless when we join ourselves to people of mixed or other races, we too become worthless, and we too become no better than Belial.
Clifton continues, and he says that conspicuously, Belial is number 1100 in Strong's, which is from the same root as the word at number 1098, meaning mixed. And therefore, as we should know, worthless, such as the Kenites, Canaanites, Edomites, etc., Check number 1100 in Psalm 18.4 and Nahum 1.15. For another definition of Belial, we will use the Revel Bible Dictionary on page 143. Belial is a proper noun, a name for Satan. In common use, a Hebrew word for worthless. We would think that anything that was mixed is satanic because it's opposed to God. The fact that it exists is adversarial to God, whether it's a person or a thing. The Revel Bible Dictionary continues and says that the phrase sons of Belial appears several times in the Old Testament. Modern versions usually simply translate this as worthless persons, since Belial means worthless or lawless. However, the proper name is retained here we go again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul asks rhetorically, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? In Jewish literature from the 2nd century on, Belial, or Beliar, was a name for Satan. In 2 Corinthians passage, Paul urges Christians not to compromise the ways, the practices, with the ways, the practices, or the people of Satan. And that was actually a decent definition, even if the author did not intend for us to interpret it as we would. Paul urges Christians not to compromise with the ways, the practices, or the people of Satan. So the end of that was a better definition than at the beginning. Again, in the Revel Bible Dictionary, there is a good definition for the word Antichrist on page 73. Antichrist, an opponent of Christ, or a substitute of Christ. The name, coined by John and found only in his letters, is rooted in ancient biblical prophecies concerning an evil person who will appear at history's end to rally mankind against God. I don't know why Clifton says that's a good definition. This was a supposition by the authors. The second part of their definition is better, as Clifton continues his citation. So that must be the part that Clifton was calling a good definition. John also speaks of many antichrists, continuing to quote the definition, and of a spirit of antichrist which is active even before the end time. These anti-Christian false teachers can be recognized by their denial of Jesus as God in the flesh. Such persons are deceivers who may masquerade as Christians, but whose true character is revealed by the refusal to affirm the full deity of Jesus Christ. Clifton goes on to say, I would point out, here that to refuse to rightly identify the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 is to deny the deity of the Messiah. In order to rightly identify our Redeemer, it is necessary to profess him not only as Yahweh in the flesh, 
but also to identify him as the one who was bruised by the serpent seed of Genesis 3.15 for our iniquities. If he was not bruised as such, he is not Yahweh in the flesh, Clifton merely saying that you cannot really separate these concepts. Further, we must recognize his resurrection. If he was not bruised, dying in our place, then he could not be resurrected. If he didn't die in our place and resurrect to life again, he is not Yahweh in the flesh. The one sea liners deny his bruising. If he suffered and died a literal physical death, then the serpent is also a literal physical sea line. By teaching against two sea line, the one sea liners or anti sea liners have made themselves antichrists, and that by their own choice. And, of course, this would seem to depend on whether the anti-seedliners interpret Genesis 3.15 in a manner in which Clifton has here. However, this interpretation is the same as that of the typical denominational church. So, I may imagine that they do accept Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy. And if they do then they deserve the descriptions Clifton has made for them here. Finally, Clifton proceeds to his conclusion of this part of his criticisms under the subtitle, The Implications of the Incarnation. Clifton says, I do not believe that the average follower of the Nazarene has ever taken the time to contemplate the implications of the Almighty, taking upon himself a fleshly body. We could ponder why he did this, but that thought is not set before us. The question is, what happens when the Almighty God entwines himself in a fleshly body that is condemned to die? Yes, when he decided to do that, he knew he was going to die the death of a man. It wasn't a question then of whether or not he was going to die, but how and when. Once committed, it was a one-way street. There was no turning back. The difference between our Messiah and man is that Yahweh had the power to lay down his life and take it back up again. But nevertheless, he was going to die a man's, or an Adamite's, physical death. The next important question is, did he die according to Scripture? Scripture says in Genesis 3.15 that he would die or be bruised by the seed of the serpent. If this is true, the serpent had to have literal children. This is the very cornerstone of Scripture. And if our Redeemer didn't die in that prescribed manner, the whole foundation of our faith is for naught. And I would say that there are certainly other scriptures that indicate that Christ would die at the hand of his enemies, as we read in Psalm 22, in verses 16 and 20. It also happened that dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. So Clifton concludes... While it is paramount that we have faith that our Almighty came in the flesh, it is important to the same degree in what manner that flesh died, and the fact that it rose to life again. The anti-seedliners talk a lot about the sovereignty of God, 
which is all well and good. But if Yahweh did not come in the flesh, be bruised and die in the flesh, resurrect to life again in the flesh, ascend to heaven in the flesh, he is not sovereign. The one sea liners, or anti-sea liners, really don't believe he is sovereign, for they deny his bruising inasmuch as they deny there was a literal seed of the serpent to bruise him. How can anyone claim that the woman was to have a literal fleshly seed, Yahshua, but then do a complete about-face and claim that the serpent's seed is only figurative? Now, who is not consistent? Those anti-seed liners will probably try to disclaim any charge of teaching an antichrist doctrine. Any further effort on their part to explain away their position will only result in digging themselves into their own quagmire. Without their realizing it, they have earmarked themselves in unequivocal terms as antichrist, anti-seed liners. And in our estimation, finishing with the conclusion of Clifton's paper, in our estimation, if the serpent of Genesis 3.15 is the flesh, then by the gospel according to Ted Wyland, the Messiah came in the serpent, and he died in the serpent, and he rose in the serpent, which is all absolutely ridiculous. Whether Clifton makes such an observation or not later in this series, I do not remember. In any case, Clifton will continue to demonstrate the faults of the anti-seedliners for 11 more of these essays, and Yahweh willing, we shall present the balance of them here in the months to come. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.